Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 29. After Hours with Andrew Lasso. Good morning, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've been reading Till We Have Faces, and since we've now finished part two, once again, we have back on Till We Have Faces expert, Andrew Lasso, who is going to be unpacking everything for us. As you recall, Andrew is an internationally known speaker and writer specializing on C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. He's currently preparing for ordination in the Episcopal Church and will one day finally release his study on Till We Have Faces. Andrew Lazo, welcome back to Pints with Jack. Well, I'm so glad to be back with you all. And we've actually coordinated on our drink of the week. Tell the people what we're drinking. I, in my Pints with Jack uh, glass, have a wee dram of Lagavulin uh, 16. And I put two drops of water in it because I found that two drops really opened that up as and uh, very well. As well, I'm a two-fisted drinker. Um, I have my etched, beautiful Pints with Jack pint glass, and I thought that I'd go with Guinness for our Irish C.S. Lewis. So that's what I have. What about you? I'm also having Lagavulin in my Pints with Jack Glencairn glass, but I didn't get a Guinness. So you're outclassing me. Okay. Did you put water in yours? I didn't. I, I, I'm, I'm still resistant to this idea of diluting this beautiful nectar. I tell you what, I tell you what, if you want to pause, I'll pause with you. Put one drop in or two and you'll find that it really opens it up. But you, you drink as you wish. <laughs> All right, hang on, just give me one moment. Okay, and I am back. I now have a couple of drops of water in my Lagavulin. I cried a little bit as I did it, but I'm going to trust you on this, Andrew. Trust me. Uh, but before we drink, there is the quote of the week. And we had to go for the classic since we're now wrapping up this book. Till that word can be dug out of us, which you have all the time, idiot like me saying over and over, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face? Till we have faces. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. See what I mean? I'm not sure if I was imagining it, but I maybe, maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> Next time, take a sip with it before a drop, and then add one drop, and then take a sip, and then add another drop, and see what you think. Okay. I think, I think I'm going to yeah. be a slow convert if this is the case. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, Andrew, we've just finished Till We Have Faces, and in part two, these chapters turn everything, all, all our thoughts and our assumptions upside down. And the last time you were on the show, I told you about a question which was raised in our San Diego book club at the end of part one. And I just want to begin by giving you the floor, uh, but I want to kick it off by asking that same question at the end of part two. What the heck did I just read? <laughs> well, uh, part two, I think, uh, pays for it all. And uh, I'll, I'll quibble a little bit. I don't think that everything in book two turns things upside down. I think everything in book two turns things right side up. Um, and I think that you have, if you've got ears to hear, you have the big reveal. Um, it's coded and it's still kind of layered and hidden. 
But I think what's happening in book two is he's really uh, he's really doing everything that we we need in order to understand. As your listeners will remember, both from your discussions and our conversations, Till We Have Faces is fundamentally about the four loves. And if you think about the first sentence, right, the second sentence in the book, I have no husband, no child, nor hardly even a friend through whom the gods can hurt me, and how that encapsulates the four loves, what you see in book two is fundamentally Orwal, as she, as we mentioned last time, revealing how she has perjured herself. And the thing that she's lied to herself the most about is love. And so what you see in all of these encounters throughout book two is this kind of denouement, this, this, this kind of epiphany about how she has not really loved at all. In fact, at one point in, the, in, in, in book two, she says that her love was nine parts hate. So if you think back about the four loves, Storgi, Philia, Eros, and Agape, um, one by one, she begins to realize that she hasn't loved at all. She hasn't loved the grandfather, which is Storgi love, just by the very term, it's family love. Um, she hasn't loved or Orwal, or I'm sorry, Orwal hasn't loved Psyche at all. Um, it was it was nine parts hate. It was self possessed. It was possessive. Uh, there's this wonderful moment with Ansett, right, where Ansett, uh, Bardia's widow, is so hard hearted and angry at Orwal for swallowing like Ungat, swallowing Bardia's life, and um, and Orwal says, Are, "Could it possibly be that you're jealous of me?" And she whips off her veil and shows Ansett her ugliness. But I think also her naked need and love of Bardia is clearly evident because Ansett says, oh, you too? You loved him too? And remember what Lewis says in The Four Loves and what he talks about with Arthur Greaves in Surprised by Joy. You too? What you too? That question is the beginning of friendship. And in a moment, they're in each other's arms. They're friends, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It was it was the recognition of something common, but also the fact that Orwell was vulnerable with Ansit. She showed her true face, which allowed that you too to be possible. Absolutely true. And in fact, I hadn't even uh, hadn't hadn't even thought about that. So that's going to go in the book, and I'm not going to give you a footnote. Totally fair. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's this recognition that they are both friends, and that friendship. And, and, and it lasts for a moment, but she has thwarted arrows between Ansett and Bardia. She got in the way of their marriage. She clearly thwarted arrows between Psyche and Eros himself. She almost, thwart, well, she's the, 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 the eunuch she thwarted arrows in, right? She's thwarted Storgi. She should have left, let the grandfather leave. She didn't really love uh, love Psyche. The girl was mine, 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 mine. She echoes Pam from The Great Divorce, right? Absolutely. Do you think what we hear about Redival, the fact that she kind of ignored her and neglected her, do you think that's legitimate? I think that that's absolutely legitimate. And yes, Redival can be a real pain, but she didn't love Redival the way that she should have, right? Remember what Lewis says in Mere Christianity, that hatred kind of is wanting the black to be blacker than it is, mm -hmm. right? 
And she doesn't give Redival the benefit of the doubt. She hates Redival because Redival is physically beautiful and flighty. And she hates Redival for trying to find love somewhere else. She didn't, Redival didn't get it from her mother who died. Redival certainly didn't, didn't get it from the king. So, I mean, this is, the, this is clearly the response and the outworking of somebody who's gone through the trauma of not having enough love is her being flighty. And I hadn't really thought before about that passage in mere Christianity, because what Lewis goes on to say is that if you give this thought its head, you, not only will you want black to be a little blacker, but it'll end in a universe of nothing but hate about you, yourself, your neighbors, and God, which is exactly what happens with Oral. And that's what happens at the end of part one. You know, she, can, she hates everything, right? And I was, uh, I was chatting with, um, as your listeners may uh, may know, I've been doing a reading till we have faces once a week on Saturdays, especially while we're locked down. And I had a listener who kind of repeated a, a sentiment that Max McLean expressed to me when we did some work on Tilia Faces. Um, he, he said, I don't like Orwell. And this, this commenter uh, also kind of enunciated this same feeling. We don't really like her. Well, the thing is, she's swallowed up by hate. What is there to like? But I think also what we don't like about Orwell is that she echoes those hateful parts of ourselves. And that's what Lewis does with the first two words of the book. He makes us speak through her voice. We can't just read about her. We have to have to say all the things that she says. And she grows increasingly hateful and small all throughout book one. And in book two, those loves start to get undone. And she just she said, well, at least I loved the fox. No, I didn't love the fox. Well, at least I loved Psyche. No, I didn't love Psyche. And she wails at being unget. And she only towards the end begins to realize that the gods were loving towards her and not hateful. And that's the great perjury is she talks about the gods' hatefulness, but the gods are actually loving her the whole way through. Hmm. I heard one commentator on YouTube suggest that even Orwell's name is a pun or you all, as in everybody. I'm not quite sure how much stake I put in that, but it does very much fit with, with that theme of Orwell is us. Yes, yes. When our loves go bad. Orwell is us anytime, right? She's us when we question the gods. She's us when we, you know, harbor our little resentments about the way things have gone for us, Right. It's a little bit like you two um, who who picked the name of their band so that it would include you too. Um, so yeah, I, I would give some credence to that. I don't. Lewis certainly hasn't said anything. Uh, you mentioned Doris Meyer's wonderful book, Bareface, uh, the most recent commentary to come out, and it's good as as far as it goes. There is one grave mistake uh, there that I actually spoke with Doris about. Um, she says that Lewis flipped the names backwards for how they would how they would read forward. And I actually tracked that down through two different journals and a conversation with Doris. And Lewis never never talked about flipping the names. But I think paying attention to those names is really good. But that kind of framework for book two is how she gets exposed for what she thought she did in love, but was really done in selfishness. And as I've stated before, the opposite of love is not hatred. It's pride or selfishness. And I was going to walk through the chapters of part two. And one question I had about chapter one, 
So in chapter one, we find out about Redival, the fact that Orwell basically ignored her. And we also find out about Bardia, the fact that Orwell consumes him. And I had a question about Bardia's son. Does Ansit love her son with some possessiveness? Or am I only perceiving that because I'm not a mother? <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, you've taken my husband and now you're going to take my son too, right? And I couldn't speak up against you because, you know, he would turn against me. No, I think that there's, there's no question that Ansett has got some possessiveness of her son. But of course, why wouldn't she? Remember that that's a marriage not because of a great dowry. Bardia didn't marry her because it made sense. Bardia married her because he fell in love with her and because she was beautiful, right? Um, and then Bardia is gone all the time. And so the only thing that she really has is the kind of hints of Bardia that she sees in her son's face. And then her son goes to serve the queen as well. And so in her, in her mind, sitting at home, I'm sure she's kind of running through the scenario of I've lost my husband and now I'm going to lose my son too. Sure. No, absolutely. And remember, we've, you, you and Matt have talked about it. We've talked about it. It's that quote from Four Loves that Lewis gets from Denis de Rougemont where he says, love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. And this whole idea of the mother's possessive, being possessive of her son is, I think, the thing that Flora did not do um, for Jack and Warney Lewis, but her early death kept them from that kind of good mother's love. I think Minto was very possessive of Lewis in kind of a mother-son way. And, you know, Pam and Michael in, in Great Divorce. And you see lots of kind of mothers and sons with some, some graspingness to them. So absolutely, I think that's an that's a absolutely apt insight. It does seem a bit tough, though, when I just think about to love somebody does mean to want to possess them, at least in some degree. Insofar as in a marriage, you're wanting an exclusivity. You're wanting something of that person that they don't give to anybody else. And appropriately so. And, and so you have, to, um, you have to remember that there was you know, this kind of love and consuming, and there's an appropriateness to consuming um, each other. But, but you have this kind of possessiveness gone crazy. Um, it's in Chapter 3 of, book, uh, of book, book 2. In Chapter 3 of Book 2, when Orwal is giving her complaint against the gods, and I know we're getting a little ahead of what she wanted uh, to do chapter by chapter, um, it's her big rant. Why should I care for some horrible new happiness which I hadn't given her and which separated her from me? There's that same selfishness that's in the octagon room, right? Um, or the five-sided room. Do you think I'd wanted her to be happy that way? It would have been better if I'd seen the brute terror in pieces before my eyes. You stole her away to make her happy, did you? Why, every wheedling, smiling, catfoot rogue who lures away another man's wife or slave or dog might say the same. Dog now. That's very much to the purpose. I'll thank you to, to let me feed my own. It needed no tidbits from your table. Did you ever remember whose the girl was? She was mine. Mine. Don't you know what the word mine means? Mine. You're thieves and seducers. That's my wrong. I'll not complain, not now, that you're blood drinkers and man eaters. I'm past enough, says the judge. And you remember 
that Pam trailing off back to the bus says, I believe in a God of love. I can't believe in a God that would keep a son from his mother. So you think about how loving Pam is. Pam would rather have taken her son from heaven to hell. That doesn't sound like love to me. And mine, mine, do you not know what the word mine means? Here's the thing about the God of love. And if you read through Toya Faces again with the idea that Ungit and her son are trying to reach Orwal with love as best they can in a pre uh, a, a reincarnate world, and you think that the gods are loving her, you'll find evidence all throughout the book as how about how loving the gods have been to her. We talked last time about walking up the mountain and all these horrible fates that she imagined for herself, but the gods kept her from those fates. Do you not know what the word mine means, Orwell asks? And here's the great irony. The gods are the only only ones who know how to possess us while setting us truly free and allowing us to be who we are. And that's what you see in love that's given over to God. As you and Marie plan your wedding, you want to possess each other and rightly so. But to possess each other in a way that will liberate each other and let each other perform to their, you know, perform your greatest good. The gods alone, love alone can possess us without clinging to us. Right. And Orwell hasn't let hasn't learned this. She hasn't learned how to let go. And she reads this complaint to the gods and the gods say, are you answered? And by the very end, she just at the very end, in words that we cannot read because her head obscures them, she finally gets it. But she doesn't get it until the last words of the book. And then Lewis doesn't let us read them. I think that's the difference. It's the wanting an embrace, but not to cling in the same way. Hmm. Well, let's then talk about chapter two. And in that chapter, we have the spring liturgy, the festival that takes place. And there is this curious incident with an old peasant woman when she comes and worships the Ungit stone. Why does she prefer the Ungit stone to the painted Aphrodite? Yes. Um, So, of course, your readers will remember that Arnam kind of gets some of this Greek philosophy. He puts in this beautiful, well, uh, the fox doesn't consider it beautiful, but this beautiful statue of Aphrodite, and Aphrodite and Ungit are the same. Um, And she always only prays to the, the stone Ungit. Um, and she says, you know, the, the other, I don't speak Greek, the other Aphrodite, you know, the other Unga wouldn't understand my language. So remember that this stone comes up, it's phonic, if you remember that wonderful word, C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C. Phonic means infernal, up from the underworld. And that's where the stone comes from. And it's in book two, it's in the same chapter, chapter two where Lewis says it's not a star that fell, fell from heaven, it's a, it's a stone that fell from heaven, it's a stone that comes up from the earth. So when you talk about that earthliness, you're talk, you have to think about um, Lewis's poem Reasoned, you know, set, in the soul, set on the soul's Acropolis, and Lewis's contrast between reason and imagination, right? And the contrast in terms of goddesses is between Athena and Demeter. And Demeter is dark, obscure, and... In, in, in she fertile from the ground, 
The meter is the underworld, right? Athena is on the hill, and that's reason. And Demeter is imagination, and that comes from the fertile soil, comes up from the dark. So Ungud is a black stone from the dark earth. And so I think that we need to see Ungud as the imagination goddess. And remember what Lewis says, I'd said that, that Ungud, Orwell says, I'd said that Ungud doesn't have a face, but in fact, she had a thousand faces, right? And her face is clotted with blood, but we project our own face onto her, right? And it's a little bit something like the God that we see in Isaiah and the Psalms, who is in, who inhabits in darkness, right? And in some ways, God needs the darkness um, to, to, to hide himself from our faces, but we see our face in his. And so I think that she, and, and then you had asked a question about the thick and the clear in terms of religion. Um, and I think that this woman kind of ref, reflects the thick religion, the kind of ritualistic, superstitious, kind of earthy religion. And so she only can pray to that Ungut because that's the Ungut that she knows. It's kind of like the charwoman that Lewis talks about. Uh, I think it's in Screwtape, um, where he goes to his local church and people are reciting a liturgy they don't really know. And they're lustily kind of singing out these hymns, the theological implications of which they can't understand. Um, so she's performing this ritual, but she's finding comfort. And this isn't comfort that she projects. This is comfort that she finds in the image of this stone that comes from below. And it's in some ways um, this kind of muted enunciation again of the, of the question, why should your heart not dance? And so she pours out her troubles towards this stone and she finds comfort, not comfort that she had within her. Um, and so I think it's in some ways for this woman in the middle of thick religion in this kind of superstitious, ritualistic, um, you know, cultish religion, she finds some comfort, comfort in the image of, uh, of Angad. Mm. And it's around this time that Orwell has the vision where she goes down through the pillar rooms and it culminates with her realizing that she is Ungit. What does that really mean? And is to be Ungit, is it necessarily a negative description? She intends it as a negative description at the time. But what is Ungit's name? What is Ungit in our language? What's her name in our language? In English. Love. I am Ungit, she says. I am love. And she wails, right? But she wails because she's undone. And she thinks that Ungit is all-consuming. And yes, God is all-consuming. He wants all of us, right? And I think that she begins, I mean, she's had a theistic conversion, right? Between book one and book two. Between book one and book two, she starts calling the gods good gods. She starts calling the god Lord. She never calls the son of the, uh, she never calls Eros Lord before book two, right? And so you need to see book two as, um, I think it's check and checkmate in Surprise by Joy. The last couple of chapters of Surprise by Joy are clearly echoed, right? Remember Lewis in Surprise by Joy wants to follow his moral conscience, but finds that he has to go and start all over again every day. And that's the same echo of Ungit trying to be nice to her servant girls and has to start over right away. That's a clear, clear echo of Surprise by Joy. And remember, Lewis finishes Surprise by Joy in 53, and the next thing he writes is Till We Have Faces. 
and it's Joy Davidman who types up, um, surprised by Joy. Um, so you've, it, it, there are, you know, there are kind of all of these overlaps. Um, and she wails, I am ungood, I am ungood. But what she really means is I am love. And she's confessing I am love before she really knows what the word means. In fact, she never gets the words out of her mouth. And we'll talk to that when we, about that when we get to the very end of, of book four. But here's another way. Now, remember that one of my keys is that every book by C.S. Lewis is in Till We Have Faces. And the Mine, Mine, Mine and the Great Divorce, that's clear. Um, uh, there's a wonderful thing. And, and uh, another key, of course, is to see Joy Davidman there. Um, and she said... Uh, she says, when she sees Psyche, she said, I never had a selfless thought of you, right? Remember she says this to Psyche? Well, um, maybe five years later, as Joy Davidman is dying, according to Don W. King, um, Lewis writes the poem as the ruin falls. And he says of Joy Davidman, this is Lewis speaking of Joy Davidman as she's dying. All this is flashy rhetoric about loving you. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, Joy Davidman, and all friends merely to serve my turn. Peace, reassurance, pleasure are the goals I seek. I cannot crawl one inch outside my proper skin. I talk of love. A scholar's parrot may talk Greek. But self-imprisoned always end where I begin. Remember that she talks about parroting the Greek that her, her master, the fox. So there's clear echoes of that poem in Till We Have Faces, right? In this poem, he writes five years later to his now wife who's dying. You have echoes of book two of Till We Have Faces. Right? I never had a selfless thought since I was born. So once again, my, one of my keys is that it's Joy Davidman. One of my keys is that it's The Four Loves. One of my keys is that it's all of Lewis's books. Now to get back to your visions and the pillar room, how many times does she dig down in the pillar room? Uh, so there's the regular level, they go down to one of Earth, then they go down to one of Living Rock. Three. And what do they find in the last pillar room that they didn't find before? The King's Mirror. Yes. Mirrors are huge huge in Lewis, right? They're also huge psychologically. And he grabs her by the scruff of the neck and he holds her in the mirror and she sees who she really is. Who is she? She is love. Love that is, yes, completely consuming, like the worst thoughts that we had had of Ungut, this pagan goddess who demands blood. But also remember that the, the, the lowest doesn't stand without the highest. The highest doesn't stand without the lowest of Lewis. And Lewis is always chucking us under the chin. Even the graspingness of the bloodthirsty pagan goddess is itself an echo that God wants all of us, right? He says it in mere Christianity. He wants to have the whole tooth out. He wants to take the whole tree down. He wants to have the whole house down. He wants all of ourselves, all of us, right? Um, he won't go in for any half measures. But this is a clear echo of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Ah, okay. So my, my first thought was actually to go to Lucy when she was on the Magician's Island, and she's jealous of, of Susan. Sure, she's jealous of somebody else's beauty, and that's a clear echo too. 
also. He says the spell to make the invisible visible, right? Um, but remember what happens to, to Eustace. How many times does he t- try to take off the dragon skin? I think three times. Three times. And I've mentioned here before that that's a flipping, a chiastic flipping right side up of the Narcissus myth, right? Narcissus sees himself in the pool, sees how beautiful he is and dies. Eustace sees himself in the pool, sees how ugly he is, three times tries to dig himself out of the dragon skin. And he lives when he realizes how ugly he is. And here's the three times digging and the mirror. This is clearly the voyage of the non-treader happening again until we have faces a couple of years later. Right? Absolutely. That's some of what that all is. Um, And it's Trom, death, right? Remember how we flipped his name last time? Trom shows her herself and self is death. But when she finally catches a vision of herself, she aptly says, I am Ungit. But she doesn't really know what it means because she still thinks that Ungit is bad. But Ungit is love. And love demands everything from us. So just before we go on to chapter three, a little earlier when you were talking about Joy Davidman, it reminded me of something that I read in her book of poetry very recently, another similarity between her and Orwell. Neither of them liked blondes. Yes. And both of them thought that they needed to have blonde hair. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, yeah, I've noticed that before. And there's certainly that tension. And there are three or four of Joy's sonnets where she talks about Lewis, um, you know, and, and, and his obsession with blondes. Evidently, if we can trust the, the poet, poems, Lewis said, well, you're not my type. I prefer blondes. And if you think about it, Ruth Pitter was blonde. Minto was blonde. Right. Um, and there's one poem where she kind of snarkled. He says, well, let me just get you a, a, get you for an hour on my bed. And you'll forget the color of the hair on my head. <laughs> so, and he was right. I think he warmed up to her. Yeah, I'm still not entirely sure if it was a true statement that he preferred blondes. It, it was, when I first read that, it struck me as a line that you use to try and dismiss somebody that is kind of interested in you and you're not. And you just want to give a reason. Sure. But Lewis had limited experience with women. Right. And. The one woman that he spent the most time with, whether or not he was romantic with her, Jerry Root and I will someday have a fight. Um, But she (laughs) was clearly blonde and Ruth Pitter was also blonde. And there certainly seems to be some flirtation with with him. And there's that wonderful poem by Joy David Moe, which you're talking about, called Gentlemen Prefer. Yeah. Um, Right. So uh, another question that you had brought up and we had discussed a little bit before is what does it mean to be unget? And we've talked a little bit about that. Right. It means to be love with all of the potentially negative self consuming, devouring aspects of that. And love is devouring. But remember what Lewis goes on to say in 1960 in The Four Loves. He said the only place that we can be free from the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Right. And at the end of Christianity, he says, I want all. Right. He wants all of us. And so that that consuming nature of love is true of God. He will have all of us, right? He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. From glory to glory, we will look, We will be like him when we see him. 
And so he is as consuming as everybody fears from the worst of the pagan gods. And that's that kind of element that is the hint in pagan religion of what is actually true. It's consuming, but at the same time also liberating. Yep. Do you not know what the word mind means? And the gods are the only ones that can possess us while completely setting us free to be who they want us to be. Because they don't have any personal stake, right? And it's once Eros and Philia develops, mellows into Storgi between you and Marie, that Agape, after all of those things start to tamp down, it's going to be Agape that allow you to possess her while also setting her free to be what she really, what, what, what God really wants her to be. There's this thing in a marriage where you hold on, but you also need to let them go. Right. Um, uh, Sheldon Van Auken in Severe Mercy certainly grappled with his jealousy of God. And God was the one who would allow Davy to be Davy. Right. Really who Davy needs to be. Um, so when we talked about um, is is Unget exclusively a negative description. Unget is a majority negative description to Orwal who approaches the gods selfishly. And the more she gets over herself, the more loving she can begin to see the gods, uh, the gods becoming. Unget is not negative. If you read it through as Unget being love and the son and her son being love and love, like I said last time, booming away for uh, the uh, booming against the window pane for hours, thinking that the way to, to reach the flowers, as Lewis says in one of his sonnets. The gods are trying to beat Orwal down with love. She even has love for her father, right? Remember that great thing that she and Psyche accuse each other of? You look just like our father. They both toss that out. But then she talks about her father riding out, and she said, that's the nearest I felt love for him. You know, there's this nobility to him. The closer she gets to love the more she starts to see herself in a mirror rightly. Eustace didn't know how to see things well. Lucy did. And when Eustace finally sees himself in the mirror of the lake, he despairs because he's so ugly. And then after that, when he lets God tear away the ugliness of the dragon skin and then baptizes him in the pool, it's the sacrament of baptism, right? That's when he began to be a better boy. That's a perfect picture of justification and the beginning of sanctification. And when you read the early church fathers, they would often speak about baptism as uh, the enlightenment. It's because at this point, you can now begin to see things clearly. Yes. This is where mystagogy began. Yes. And Jesus said that we are dead in our trespasses and sins until we come to life in Christ. Right. And so that's part of why I see this as the most clear theological book that Lewis ever, ever wrote. And it's talking about the gospel of love, right? You can see love, the love of God, beating down her defenses. And that's why we don't like Orwell, is because we resist love the same way she does. And we turn to anything else except God. It's not in my tradition, but it's in yours to sit and adore the Blessed Sacrament. How often does your mind wander when you do that? <laughs> no comment. 
<laughs> and if that really is what you all believe, and that's a, there's an excellent case to be made for that being the presence of Christ, why do I want to flinch from that so much? Right? Why do I flinch from love so much? And why we don't like Orwell is because she presents to us a perfect picture of our consistent fl flinching before the face of love. Yes, this is a pre-incarnate love. Yes, this is love in a pagan world, right? But still, there are all kinds of echoes of what love is really like. And if she loved love, as Bruce Coburn said, he said, well, if you love love, then love loves you too. She hates love, but she still can't keep love out of her doors. And once she finally sees herself, she finally sees that she's loved, and that begins working on her even at the end of her life. But I believe that Orwell was, was redeemed. I think Orwell turns into MF by the very end. I think I'll go with that. But we haven't talked about chapter three yet. <laughs> well, let's talk about chapter three. So in this chapter, she has a vision where she's going through the desert. She comes to this mountain that's covered in all kinds of horrible creatures. Uh, an eagle comes down and she's basically escorted into the mountain, down into the steep pit. And this is where she presents her case. Her book transforms well, firstly, from a bowl into this little scrap of paper with crazy person writing all over it. That's how I imagine it. And she presents her case to the gods. Who is the judge that she's standing before? Yes. Um, so it, Lewis doesn't specifically say, but I have my informed theory. Um, and we can do this internally and then externally. Um, the only one who's the only God who speaks to Orwell is the son of the God of love. It's the God of the gray mountain, right? And remember what she says at the very beginning of the book when she begins to write her complaint, okay? Here's one of this. This is what makes Lewis so brilliant. He will not answer me? That is, I will tell all he has done, done to me from the very beginning as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. But there is no judge between God's and men, and the God of the mountain will not answer me. The fact that the God of the mountain will not answer her is a lie. And there's been some talk on the Slack channel. And I think people are a little upset at me calling her a liar because they don't want to lo look at their own dishonesty. And I don't want to look at my own fundamental dishonesty either. But she says, uh, as if I were making my complaint of him, the God of the gray mountain, before a judge, but there is no judge between gods and men. There's a clear echo of Hebrews that there is one mediator between God. I think it's Hebrews. One mediator between God and man, the man. Christ Jesus. Actually, I think it's Timothy, but anyway. Yeah. Who himself is the, the living and speaking word, right? And Christ, too, is the son of the God of love, who himself is the God of love. The God of the gray mountain is a Christ figure, mm -hmm. right? And we never see him doing anything wrong. The only thing he does is take Psyche because she's beautiful, right? And Orwell would rather keep Psyche with her than to go and be loved by love. It's the same thing. Orwell is Pam. Orwell would drag Michael down to hell. Psyche, or, uh, Pam would drag Michael down to hell. Orwell would keep Psyche with her instead of going to meet the dream of having the, the, the Golden Amber Palace and the God of the Grey Mountain. She'd been longing all of her life. So I think clearly the judge, uh, not clearly, but my best extrapolation is that that's, that's Eros. That's, that's the son of Unged. He's just failed. 
Excellent. Good. That was my suspicion as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's always reassuring when you know you've got some company. Yes. Well, and then one of the things, even as we're looking at this, is there's so much consistency line by line, chapter by chapter. This book is so coherent. This book fits together. Uh, every line, I think, is examined and building towards this grand conclusion. I think that this is a masterpiece. I think that you could mention this in the same breath as Hamlet or Paradise Lost. I think Lewis hid things too well. But there's a cohesion to this book like nothing else Lewis has ever, has ever written. Um, and, and the suspicion that there's something really important going on is accurate. It's actually kind of funny. It's rather like the Chronicles of Narnia in that regard. The fact that everybody felt like there's some connecting thread, but we can't quite put our finger on it. Sure, sure. And of course, as I mentioned the first time, my first kickoff clue that there may be a pattern to Till We Have Faces was from Michael Ward when he showed us the organizing pattern of the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, I was just having a conversation earlier in the week with Max McLean about uh, about the overarching underlying theme of all of Lewis's writings being love. And he mentioned that wonderful, um, wonderful passage in, in uh, mere Christianity, if I find in myself. Um, and so let me see a, a desire that nothing else can satisfy. Oh, that's in the chapter on hope. Yes. If I find within myself a desire which nothing as well can satisfy me, then that tells me the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Yes. So here's what Lewis says. If I find in myself a desire, that word desire leads to love. Right? Um, but desire is joy. And, and what I was talking about with Max is that joy points towards, desire points towards the fulfillment of it. And the fulfillment of joy is love, which is clear in all of Lewis's writings. If you don't believe me, read the last chapter of, of Surprise by Joy and then follow it up with the last chapter of The Four Loves and it will come out clearly. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud or ungit, right? Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, right? So this, this desire, both of Psyche and, and, and Orwell, it, this, this joy that they have, these stabs of longing, even their longing for Psyche, is a longing not for the experience, but for the fulfillment. It's not joy that Lewis wants, but it's the fulfillment of the longing, and that fulfillment of longing is love, is God himself. And when Orwell is going up the mountain and she has that feeling, why should your heart not dance, that was preparatory for her, to, so that her longing was preparing her to see the palace, but she resisted the longing. Exactly. And it's not a feeling it's an invitation from outside of her. This is not from inside of her. This is from outside of her. Why should your heart not dance? Um, probably earthly pleasures were, uh, were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. That's what Orwell does the whole time right? Despises the earthly blessings. On the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or image. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my one true country, which I shall not find till after death, right? 
die before you die. There is no uh, no time after. And remember what Lucy says when she's forbidden to come from coming back from Narnia. It's not Narnia, Aslan. It's you. It's God that is the end of all our desire and longing. And God is love. And this is what Lewis is shouting from every single page of Till We Have Faces. And this is the culminative book, culminative book that puts all of that stuff that Lewis is always working on before and after. It's all right here until we have faces. Well, since we're talking about culminations, let's talk about chapter four. Sure. Because it's in this chapter where Orwell is taken to a series of walls that have moving pictures on them. And we get to see some of the visions replayed. Yes. So can you speak about that? What is going on with Orwell's visions? Is she really sharing in some of Psyche's challenges? Because in an earlier episode, I read a section from Charles Williams. And I am, I am as convinced as I can be, this is what Lewis was going for. It's coherence, it's substitution, and all of the stuff that he would go through with joy. And remember what that chapter is called in Charles Williams? The Doctrine of Substituted Love. Mm. Okay? This whole idea of coherence of substitution, it's substituted love. So uh, there's two questions. First is, what's going on with all of these visions? What sparks Orwell to rush back home and write up her book? She sees the, she goes to that little temple and they get the story wrong, so she wants to set the story straight, right? And the blindness and everything. And so vision is incredibly important to Lewis. His favorite character in literature, I'm convinced, is Lucy. And it's because she sees everything. And if what I've been, what I've been propounding in terms of my universal field theory of Lewis is correct, that the <laughs> overarching underlying thing of Lewis is clarity and charity. Mm-hmm. What Lewis wants us to do all the way along is to see things clearly. And the thing he most wants us to see clearly is love, caritas, agape, right? The only reason Lewis talks about any of the other loves is so that we can see the divine love better. Because the great commandments are to love God and to love neighbor, right? But to love my neighbor as I love myself. There are three components to the great commandments. It's to love God, it's to love my neighbor, but to realize the love with which I have been loved. Love my neighbor as I love myself. And I can't love myself because I have a healthy mirror in my house. I can't love myself without seeing the redeeming love and grace of God, making all of that crap that I am into something good. Those people who love us, our fiancés and our friends and our wives and everything, those are the people who hold us up to the hold up to us the mirrors of who we really are. And that's what Arnon does at the very end. He says she was this wonderful person. And so Orwell goes through this great kind of dark night of the soul that most saints do. The closer they get to love, the more they feel unlovely. I think Orwell is a great saint. And so this vision is an invitation to see things clearly. And so, and she says, I don't even know if they were a vision. At one point, I just walked through a door and I was into it. The closer she gets to dying and perhaps uniting with love, the more clearly she sees. And she's starting to see things clearly. And that was actually one of my questions when I was rereading part two. It made me question whether or not Orwell actually really tried to commit suicide 
or whether that was a vision itself. I think it, I think she does try to commit suicide. Um, I think that, I think we can take that at face value, but not, not stay there because then who does she see trying to take it, trying to take her own life later? Psyche. She sees Psyche. And what does she say? She says, do not do it. So here's Orwell who despairs and then ties her feet together and is going to jump into the river. By the way, the river is her own making. Remember that she says the river wouldn't have been deep enough had I not deepened it. It was one of her great achievements. It was one of her great achievements, yes. Um, And remember one of the other great achievements that she talks about very early on. She smoothed the pavement. Yes, in the pillar room. She's making things clear. She's removing obstacles. She removes obstacles for everybody in Glow. She removes obstacles for Illyria, the son of Anson and Bardia. She removes obstacles for Redival. Even the, you know, even the castration, which she didn't do, you know, it's a, it's a removal of obstacles. And she makes things better. And I did, and I did, and I did, and I did. I queened it very well. And that's why she's so beloved. She's making the way clear. She's making the way clean. She's, though, despaired of all of this, and she goes to kill herself. And once again, you have to ask who's speaking. And I think the same person who says, do not do it when she's going to drown herself, is the person who said, why, does, why should your heart not dance? I think it's the judge. I think it's the God of the Gray Mountain. Love says, don't kill yourself. Right? And that's actually something that Orwell says when she's seeing the moving picture. She's actually speaking with the voice of love. And who is it that's going to kill herself then? It's Psyche. Psyche and she flow in and out of each other. Mm-hmm. Right? And remember what the judge says. Another bore nearly all the anguish. Who are the Christ figures? Certainly Eros, right? The son of the God, uh, the son of Unget. Psyche is clearly a Christ figure. You can see that over and over again. Orwell is also a Christ figure because Orwell bore, as you said, in a Williamsian way, the, um, the, uh, the, the anguish of everything that Psyche, all the tasks that Psyche had to do. Remember that Psyche was banished from the presence of Eros and given these impossible tasks. And she surely, yeah, I, don't, I don't think it at all unlikely that she tried to commit suicide. But love says to her, don't do it. But Orwell, who says to Psyche, don't do it. Orwal is Ungit. Mm. And the gods flow in and out of each other. Love says to her, don't kill yourself. Love says to her, there's hope. Love says to her, let me help. Well, this is what love does. And this is what the son of the God of love does, which is what we talked about all last Holy Weekend at Easter. Right? This is what love does. Don't do it. Visions are an invitation to see more clearly. And in her visions, she goes through all of these tasks that, um, that, that Eros has assigned to her. Gathering the wool of the sheep, um, going to the river of the deadlands, um, uh, the, the seed and the, ant, and, and, and the ants, getting beauty from the casket, right? Beauty from the place of death. Again, it's Lewis, and, and maybe the gods will not love us unless we have beauty of soul. Well, they won't. They won't love us unless we have beauty of soul. But then they will give us the beauty of soul because she takes the beauty and she brings it. And it's psyche who's beautiful. And psyche means the human soul. 
Anytime you see the word soul, you have to translate it psyche. And every time you see the word psyche, you have to tra translate it to the word soul. This is something I mentioned on Saturday when I did my reading. Um, I believe clearly that Till We Have Faces was written in Lewis's head in Greek. I think he read it, he wrote it in Greek in his head and translated it in, into English. Right? I write in the Greek of my old masters. This is exactly what Lewis would do. In the Ohel, Lewis takes quotations in foreign languages and he translates those into 16th, 15th, 16th century English mm. right? for fun, he says. <laughs> And he even says when he's learning Greek, it's not so much about learning that you replace this word for this word. It's you think of a, of a ship and you just have associated with it the Greek word for ship. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And I think that that's, I would, I would give anything for a classical scholar or a, a classics student who is studying classical Greek to see if they could see what, what insights we could get by by exploring two AF faces as originally written in classical Greek and then translated into English. I bet you there are loads of insights and I'm too old to learn classical Greek. You know? <laughs> so, so there's this kind of translation that's going on. Okay. So she sees all of the different visions. She sees that she's participated in some way with Psyche's own challenges. And she sees the obstacles that Psyche had in her yes. own task. She sees that the crowds were an obstacle that she passed. The fox was an obstacle that she passed. Even Orwell herself. I loved the reveal of that. That it was a face that she didn't recognize. You think, oh, okay, so it's not Orwell. And then you see the arm bleeding. It's like, oh, it is. It is. But they're one. They're united. And what unites people? What brings people together? Love. Love. Right? And even, I mean, uh, even her stabbing her own arm is misguided love, mm. right? It's bent love. It's good in a bad proportion, as he talks about in your Christianity and Paralandra, which is another book about Venus, Aphrodite, Ungut. I, I keep hearing a very twisted version of Isaiah in my head. He was wounded for our transgressions. Well, that's what Oral thinks that she's doing. Uh, she was a, a, a acquainted with sorrow. Yes. And what does Psyche do? Psyche says yes, even though it costs her love. But then Psyche is eventually made a goddess, according to the Greek mythology. She's eventually united with love. Right? But so is Orwal. And the gods flow in and out of each other. And the god flows in and out of Psyche. Right? And Psyche means human soul. So love comes into the human soul. And Psyche, I am Psyche too, she says. I am Unget, I am Psyche. You can't take those I am statements wrongly right? or, or lightly. And I am is how she begins the first book, which clearly echoes the I am of both the Old Testament and John chapter 8, right? These are the I am's of God. I am Ungat too. I am Psyche too. I am like my father. I am death. When my death goes awry, I am death. But I am love. And if I am love, I am also beloved. And that's what's going on with all of this stuff. The gods are beating at her, trying to communicate to her through any means possible how much they love her. And these are gods 300 years before the, before the incarnation. And she does seem to begin to understand this concept. Because after she's seen these, these walls, she's taken and she meets Psyche. Yes. And in a beautiful passage, she speaks about how she now loves Psyche more than she could ever possibly have imagined before. 
But yet even then she sees that Psyche is almost nothing because she points to another. There was someone else for whom all of this was made. Yes. Yes, of course. And that's always, and remember, you know, I've, I've talked, I've talked before and I since went back and looked up, um, uh, looked up my the transcript that Becca Choate, booksbybecca.com, um, has she made a transcript of the uh, of the the 1958 audio version of it's not an audio version it's Lewis's first draft of Four Loves which you could hear in his own voice there to this day literally is no audiobook of the Four Loves mm-hmm. there's only the script from 58 well if it's in 58 who's co-writing that with him by the way of course it's got to be George Davidman right. Um, it's a year after their marriage. Um, and it says that love is where we go out of ourselves to meet another. Right. And so the fundamental move of love is to turn away from me and turn towards you. That's why Lewis says that a prostitute may be closer to heaven than a cold hearted prig. But of course, it's better to be neither. <laughs> um, but that's what's going on. So, and, and Psyche's trying to help her see all the way. Psyche's husband calls to her, why should your heart not dance? And if she had said yes to that call, she would have seen Psyche in her finery in the house with the goblet. But even though she said no, just by kneeling down at the river, as we talked about before, she's given the vision, the gift of seeing the palace. If she will get over herself, she will see love. And that's what's going on. So would you say it's ultimately her journey in all of this is a call to humility? And when she starts to humble herself, everything else starts falling into place? Yes, absolutely. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But she says she has nothing to fear from the anger of gods. Well, that, yeah, but she's, that's, her, that's her first lie. <laughs> she's afraid of the anger of gods all the way through, you know? Those of you who are troubled with, with Orwell being a liar, just read it through looking for her lying and you'll find it everywhere. And it'll be in my, it'll be in my annotation too. Um, but fear is good. It talks about that in the four loves too, right? In the chapter on charity. And that's why the end of the book ends the way that it does. Right. Um, and you're, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, speaking of the, of the end of the book, what do you think Orwell was in the middle of writing when she died? I know exactly what those words are. And that's my great revelation. That's the thing that I've learned. And that is the linchpin to hold the whole thing together. Okay. So if you think about it, hatred is pegged all the way one way. And fear is ambivalent, right? Fear is a good emotion properly applied. Okay. Um, so if you read the last paragraph. Um, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. That's a big clue. As I've mentioned before here, that's a huge clue to pay attention to first words and last words. If the last two words of book one are no answer, the first two words are I am. Book one is I am no answer, which is the first stage, which is humility. I am no answer. It's the first of the great four spiritual laws. I'm dead in trespasses and sins, right? I am no answer. Somebody else must be the answer, right? And remember what she says. I know now, Lord, that's spoken honestly. She's calling love, Lord. 
I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Love is the answer. Before your faith, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? And remember, the gods can't meet us face to face till we have faces. But gods can't answer our questions until we actually have the right questions to ask. And the only question is, who are you, Lord? What other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle against other words. Although words are the starting place, right? Christ did not become a statue or a painting or a song. He became the word. That's what he entered this world as. Long did I hate you. Now look at the parallelism. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you, I might love you. That's exactly what she wrote. That must be what she wrote. And of course, this is the this is the great fun that I have whenever I teach this, because having led the audience all the way through, I let them fill in the answers. And remember what Arnam says: says from the markings after the word "might," we think the queen's head must have fallen forward on them as she died, and we cannot read them. So she writes, "Love you," probably with the agape word. Mm-hmm. Is she? How is she writing? What is she using to write physically, materially? Uh, I'm assuming a stylus and ink. Ink. Yeah. Before the ink was dry, remember. So she writes, love you. Why does her head obscure the words love you? There are a couple possibilities. Her head goes down onto the page itself. Sure, why? Because she's old and she dies. Yeah. Right? Or because Lewis is done and he's bored and he's tired and the book (laughs) needs to be over. Right? Maybe she dies and falls forward. Why else might she press her head down? In prayer? Not just prayer. When a priest becomes a priest, how do they lie? Prostrate. Yes. She bows not in not only in prayer, but in worship. Mm. Because she sees love you. And that undoes her. And this is conversion. This is what happens when I abandon myself and I admit that I might love God. But remember what it says in the epistles. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. Because he first loved us. So she writes in ink. She bows her head. Where are those words now? Written on her forehead. (laughs) Revelation. Yeah. The new name. Mm Mm-hmm. Face. And what does her head say? Love you. Or you love. <laughs> you love, but then backwards. Love you. Now it says you love. The holiest word in the whole universe that we as humans can say is thou. You. Not me. You. And what's the only thing that we can say about God if we had only one thing to say? Love. It must be what she wrote. 
And then Lewis keeps us from seeing it because we have to discover the love of God for ourselves. Mm. We have to discover his love for us and then in response, our love for him. And we too have to die before we die because there is no time after. And we have to die to ourselves and be raised in the newness of life in love. We have to bow down and die like she dies. We have to bow down and worship. Every knee will bow. And we have then a new name, like it says in Revelation, which no one knows, but everybody knows. The name on our forehead is God's love. And that's what Lewis is all about, is making clear the love of God. But look at how brilliantly he does it. He makes clear the love of God by hiding it. And making us demand the answer to search it out rather than simply telling us. Find it ourselves like a riddle at the end of what he called far and away my best book. Remember what we talked about at the very beginning. Now I'm trying to catch the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. And catch the reader unawares. Remember what he says that people more need to be reminded than they need to be taught. And what to be, we need to be reminded that God loves us. That's the fundamental organizing principle of the entire universe is God's love. Creation comes from that. Incarnation comes from that. Resurrection comes from that. Salvation, sanctification, and eternity comes from God's love. It's the organizing principle of the universe is the love of God. And that's the organizing principle of this book to which every single line is pointing. And that's why this is far and away Lewis's best book, because it says everything that he wants to say, and all of his other books are there. Everything in, that Lewis ever wrote is about making things clear so that we can see the love of God, grapple with it, die to ourselves, and be risen to everlasting life. That we can, as Wendell, uh, Wendell Berry said, practice resurrection, which is God loving his son so much that he couldn't leave him in the grave, nor could he leave us in the grave of our own selfishness. Right. Locked inside that casket. Right. That's that passage from from the four loves safe inside the prison where we not only we can't love, can't be loved, we can't even love. And he's going to save us from ourselves, which is the ultimate act of love. We have to experience that kenosis, that lowering that he did, which we celebrated on Good Friday. And you see all of that worked out in this book, aiming towards this very moment. The reason why I first came to I Might Love You was actually because in that final paragraph that Orwell was writing, it reminded me of St. Augustine mm. when he wrote, Late have I loved you, a beauty ever ancient, ever new. You called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness. Yes. And Lewis loved his Augustine and Orwell loved him late too. Why does she die? Because it's a pre-incarnate world. The best judge between God and men is this pagan God that she has some vague, thick notion of, right? Christ isn't here yet. And so she dies in this kind of hope. But I think that when we get to heaven, when we see Emmeth, we'll see Orwell standing next to him. <laughs> Those great pagans who stumbled through the darkness towards their blind gropings towards love. And they found it, but more than that, love found them. Well, I think you've answered my question, why do you think Mrs. Lewis is greatest work? Uh, one small question I had is, it's the very final sentence where, where the priest is talking about 
what he's going to do with the manuscript. The grammar just seemed a little odd to me. He ends it as a question. Am I just reading something into that? It just seems strange. I, you know, I, 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 I saw your question beforehand. The priest who comes after me has it in charge to give up the book to any stranger who will, who will take an oath to bring it into Greece. That doesn't sound like a question to me. I don't think it is a question. Why is there a question mark? I don't see one. The edition that I was looking at online, it's got a question mark on it, and it's the one with a very angelic-looking Eros. That's a typo. The online version is a typo. Okay, good. Because that really annoyed me. I thought, this is some kind of puzzle. Yeah, no. No, but I think that you're absolutely wise to, um, to assume that it's a puzzle um, and, and to, to ask it carefully, to, to, to interrogate it carefully, to, to explore it carefully. Um, because oftentimes, I mean, I've never found a comma out of place. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, there's even... I can't find it right now. I'll have to have to find it and, and talk about it later. In um in one of the early chapters, uh, there's a repeated V. Mm-hmm. Yes. After you mentioned that on the live stream, I went and looked in my copy. I didn't see it. Yeah, it's it's marked in one of mine somewhere. So um, I'm sure I've circled it, and and I think it comes back comes back from the very from the the American first edition um, is where that that mistake is made. But I, your your readers are wise. You are wise to look at every single period and ask why, and and to assume that it's laden with meaning. Because as Douglas Gresham told me, Lewis would write a paragraph or a page or whatever, and Joy Davidman would make corrections, and then Lewis would rewrite. So there were three versions of of every every edition, or of the final edition. Lewis says that. Um, he has Joy Davidman's copy uh, of, uh, of, uh, of or Lewis's copy of one of Joy's books. She actually quotes, Lewis quotes one of Joy Davidman's novels. And I won't tell your listeners about that because that's my big reveal. Um, uh, but uh, I would love, I would love, love, love to see if I could find the manuscript of Till We Have Faces and how the changes took place. Because, of course, Lewis wrote it in hand. Um, and I hope that that wasn't one of the one of the papers that got lost. Um, that Warney burnt. That Warney burnt, or that was in the Gene Wakeman boxes where George Davidman's poems came from, that have been destroyed. And there were there were many letters that were destroyed. All of the letters between George Davidman and C.S. Lewis, of which there were many, uh, Doug says, have been destroyed um, by water. So. Okay. So yeah, this this book. I mean, you just can't finish plumbing the depths of it. Every time I read it, I find new things. Every time I read it with anybody, they find new things. Um, it's just, it's incredibly rich. Well, thank you, Andrew, for coming and unpacking Till We Have Faces for us. Uh, once again, where can people find out more about your work? And in particular, when will you be reading Till We Have Faces on Facebook again? <laughs> thank you for asking. I've, uh, I've created an event. It's on my author page, Mr. Andrew Lazo. Um, and I've plastered it all, uh, on my regular Facebook page, um, Andrew Lazo, and it's on Saturdays at 1 PM Eastern time. Um, and for the next, however many weeks, I'm going to read a chapter and take some questions and make a couple of observations, uh, about Tilly Faces. 
Uh, I posted that the videos from that on YouTube. So my uh, my YouTube channel, Andrew Lazo, uh, is there. I haven't put it up on MythOfLove.net, which is the the kind of landing page for all of my Toya Faces stuff. Uh, but I shall. I'll put a link to that. But if people want to find me, it's pretty easy to do. Uh, and I look forward to uh, to folks coming. I the, the latest thing that Facebook told me is that 1.4 thousand people have uh, have watched that video. So, and that's just me reading a chapter without any comments, taking questions from the audience, and and just giving some observations. Uh, so we look forward to doing that for the next few weeks. Wonderful. Well, in addition to those events and those places, uh, listeners will also be able to get more content from Andrew simply by listening to this podcast. Yes. Uh, I am very pleased to announce that in season four, Andrew will be uh, fulfilling the job of host once a month with Matt and myself taking it in turns to co-host with him. Uh, so welcome on board the Pints with Jack team. Well, thank you very much. I need to order my shirt so that I have all the rest of the swag, uh, but I'll do that forthwith. And I just love what you and Matt are doing. And I think that it's a real service uh, to, to the Lewis world. And to the world of the rest of us amateurs, uh, lovers of Lewis. And you're so insightful and congenial. I was talking with Diana Glyer uh, just this last week, who was praising uh, how well you all do what you do. Um, and so uh, it's just an honor to be able to sidle up alongside you all and, 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 uh, and, and talk about what we'll talk about next. You haven't revealed to your readers what we're reading next season, have you, yet? Uh, I think I've at least talked about it on Slack. We're going to be doing the screw tape letters. Yes, wonderful. Because everybody wants us to do the screw tape letters. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And that was the starting place for me when it came to Toya Faces. So I'm, I can't wait to, to visit those again with you all. Yeah, it's, it's going to be really good. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, I'm also pleased to go back to a book that I've read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Working my way through Till We Have Faces Blind was very difficult. Oh yeah, but what a what a joy! And then now you won't be able to avoid till we have faces in everything that you read. I mean, you'll you'll find it you'll find it everywhere. Well, listeners, next week I'm going to be doing an interview with Dr. Jason Lepoyavi on the subject of Lewis, Augustine, and love. Yes, Jason's a, a dear friend. His dissertation was about um, was about Lewis and love. Love is not God, or God is love, but love is not God. Um, and it's, uh, it's just going to be a fantastic time with him. Absolutely. It, I've actually already recorded it and it was great. <laughs> oh, good, good. He's a dear friend. And then after that, we're going to have a number of different after hours interviews, uh, quite a few where we'll be introducing another member of the Inklings, J.R.R. Tolkien. Oh, fantastic. Yes. And after that, we will be beginning season four of Pints for Jack, where we're going to be reading the Screwtip Letters. And we're going to be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>